On Behind the Idea this week, we're talking with Berna Barche of Viola Capital Management about her short thesis on Ralph Lauren. One of the topics that came up was Ralph Lauren's original sin. You know, the mistake that, that Ralph Lauren made was not that they're in TJX, but that they took their iconic signature product and put it in there. Yeah, whoops. We also chatted about an investment industry that predominantly employs men and how that can give her an advantage. You know, I'm a, I'm a mother. I buy all my kids' clothes. And, you know, I said, these are ridiculous arguments, really. Like, it is conventional wisdom. Behind the Idea is the podcast that breaks down ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes great investment analysis work. Nothing on here should be taken as investment advice. Neither Mike Taylor nor I have any positions in any stocks mentioned. Berna is short RL and long LB. Berna is the founder and portfolio manager at Viola Capital Management, and she's been in the industry for over 20 years with a focus on consumer-facing industries. This was one of our favorite interviews, and we're excited to share it with you. Let's get started. Welcome to Behind the Idea. We're here with Bernard Barche of Viola Capital Management. I'm Daniel Schwarzman, and we have Mike Taylor on the line as well. So, Berna, welcome on. Hi, thanks for having me. So, just to get started, you, you've, you came out in May with your short idea on Ralph Lauren. They just re- reported, a, I think it's their fiscal year Q1 a couple weeks ago. The stock beat, they showed revenue growth. But it, the shares actually haven't moved it that much without getting too fixated on the on short term. Like, what, what did you think of the quarter? How does that fit into your general view on Ralph Lauren? Well, it's interesting because when I saw the press release, I was actually a little nervous because I thought, to me, Q1 in many ways looked like a much better quarter than Q4. Where, which was the quarter that I actually got squeezed on. And even in the pre-market before its big reversal was never up the huge amounts that, you know, I think it was maybe up five or 6%, you know, at the highs of today's maybe eight, you know, it never had the giant move that it did on the Q4 number. And I think that's just because they had already gotten so much credit, but they turn around, you know, part of my thesis is they've gotten 80% of the credit for the turnaround by the end of Q4 or even though they've only done 10 or 20% of the heavy lifting when it comes to operations and delivering results. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the number that I'm really focused on is the wholesale number in the U.S. and the comps in the U.S. because I have this thesis that that will point you towards what the true brand strength is for the company overall. And, um, Secondarily, your next best indicator would be the same indicators in Europe. And and it, the number that stuck out to me was that things got sequentially much better on the decline in sales in the U.S. And while the comp got worse quarter to quarter, just overall sales were down a lot less. And that had me a, a little concerned, the stabilization of the U.S. wholesale number. Of course, once we got onto the call, we found out that there was timing of shipments and they'd moved a whole bunch of off-price shipments, you know, slipped into Q1 that would have been in other quarters. So that explained a lot of that. So, 
sort of the things that had me, the one number that had me panicked was that sequential improvement in the U.S. And then, you know, once we got into that, once we got the details on that, it was actually a low quality improvement. So I felt a lot better at it. And I also, there were some things that they said about having pulled back from the channel, which I, part of my thesis was that they if they did really pull back from that channel, which is what they need to do to elevate their brand, it would take out earnings too much. They're sort of in this chicken and egg situation. Either they sort of accept who they are as a brand that is very distributed in an off price and outlets and accept that, or they sort of shrink to grow and, and, and do step back from those discounted channels. But then, earnings are going to have to go down before they go up and basically try to elevate themselves into more of a full price brand again. But I, I did a bunch of checks after the quarter and lo and behold, you know, their presence was just as high as they were before. So um, I think the other thing that sort of knee jerk in the quarter, it looks, you know, the numbers, the overall, the headline numbers out of China look very exciting. But then when I dug into it, you know, the China comp of six, if you look at U.S. retailer numbers all day long, you say, oh, wow, it's a comp. You know, the, you know, I count on my on probably one hand the number of retailers, maybe two that are comping six in the U.S. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, Chinese GDP is somewhere between seven and eight and China retail sales are 10. So if you are an underpenetrated brand, that's still opening stores and has very small market share. Why are you growing smaller than the market? To me, that's not an indication of strength of the brand there. So there's that. And, you know, as they had more time to dig in, um, we see further declines in the other, other segment. The other segment contains their small club Monaco business and the licensing income. And the licensing income is important because um, I think that was down 7%-ish in the quarter. And while that's a small revenue number, that is a, that that margin on that, which they're not disclosing anymore, but we know historically it's been about 80% operating margin. And those are one to five year contracts that are locked in with minimums. But when the, the contracts roll over, as we've seen at companies like Fossil, if you're not making the minimums, the contracts go away. So that's very important revenue to the company that is very much tied to the strength of the brand. And you see that continue to decline. And so, you know, the headline had me a little little nervous, but then when I dug in, I said, there's nothing that's changing my mind here. Awesome. Thank you. We had, I've had a lot of questions and some of the things that you touched on here. One thing I wanted to touch on a little bit more that you just mentioned was this I this chicken and egg problem of the need operationally to pull back from the channel, but the problem of earnings going down in response to that. And the question that that called to mind for me is, okay, management has this turnaround plan in place is trying to put a turnaround narrative out to the market. Is it not possible for the reduce earnings in the short term to for for management to explain that in terms of this is part of the longer term turnaround why is it 
why is there this chicken and egg problem? Can they not somehow explain that? Or is it just an economic chicken and egg more than a narrative chicken and egg problem? Well, I mean, let's look at where they do business, right? So let's just start with the U.S., so half of their business. So they're in the they're in the wholesale their wholesale channel is department stores that's clearly not going to grow they're probably going to lose a couple of clients because you know how long is lord and taylor going to be for this world and you know macy's will continue to it won't go away but it'll continue to close doors you know so so that's not going to that you know they'll be lucky to stay stable there right and then the outlet business they did open i think a couple of outlets but they have, you know, a couple hundred, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but a couple hundred, almost almost 200 outlet stores in the 190s, I think. There are a few outlet centers where they have more than one store, but they're in the 190s, and I think there are only 220 outlet centers in America. So they're pretty full, fully penetrated in, on outlet stores, and they have, as I mentioned in my presentation, this nearly four-to-one ratio of outlet stores to full-price stores, which is you know, compares to more like one-to-one at places like Coach and, and Coors. So they're already for a premium aspirational luxury brand in a in a way over outletted in, in, in proportion to the number of full-price stores. So there aren't more centers to go to. And if there were, the, there's too many of them in relation to the full-price stores. So that leaves direct. It leaves it leaves e-com business and, and it leaves their own stores but they used to have twice as many stores or maybe 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 not quite twice i think they have around 40 stores in the u.s and maybe they had 65 or something at the peak i'd have to go back into my model but they they closed a lot of doors because they weren't profitable now the one thing that i would say was to me was the thing that sort of made me most interested in the call was they mentioned that they opened a small store, small store format that was doing well. I think it was in LA. I think maybe in the Beverly Center, one of the one of the A plus small locations in, in in center LA. And I would love to go see that store next time on the West Coast. I'll make sure I go there. And that makes sense for me. Is it's something for them to try to figure out how to get the full price format to work for them, how to build a store where they can be full world profitable on a lower CapEx initial investment because so they can get that four to one ratio in order and take control of their distribution more. That would be a way to elevate the brand. But, but say they figure out that formula, that's going to cost money to open those stores. And, the, you know, in order to to basically go through this trajectory of going from earnings of six to eight that, that people are looking for over the next few years, um, they have to grow revenue and they have to expand margins. So when you look at how they're going to get there, when they basically, uh, they basically have a department store wholesale business that's in secular decline, an off-price wholesale business that for strategic reasons, they have admitted they cannot grow anymore, an outlet business that is fully penetrated. So now they're left with e-com and potentially growing a store base that they already 
shrunk because it wasn't profitable, but maybe they go back and they grow it in a more profitable way. But how do you grow e-com and grow stores without spending money? You know, you have to spend money on marketing. You have to spend money on on people. You and and they also are talking about new categories, doing you know under penetrated categories like denim, outerwear, wear to work. Um, shoes and I think handbags. I think those are the five. Uh, maybe uh, maybe shoes and handbags are together, and I'm missing one. But they're talking about underpenetrated categories. But to go after those categories, you have to hire design teams, and then you have to support them with marketing and advertising. And you know, marketing may be cheaper than it used to be because you can do more digital now, and 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 you know, less traditional print and stuff. But, but it's still, none of this is free. So the idea that you're going to get a continued margin expansion while you drive the top line by new businesses, while you fight that there are other businesses in secular decline, and by the way, this very profitable um, licensing business seems to be in secular decline, the most profitable business they have, you know, I just don't get it, you know. So even if they can get the top line going, they're going to have to spend to get the top line going. And so that's how why I just don't think the numbers can, can they can make the numbers. But you know, going back to sort of the larger philosophical idea of you know how the corner that I think they backed themselves into is that they did severe brand damage by by over-distributing and by in these discount channels. You, you know, why would you ever pay $84 for a full-price polo collared men's shirt when you can walk into a TJ or Marshalls and get one for $34.99 or $39.99? It basically looks like the exact same thing. Or drive down the street, you know, to a, a factory outlet and get one. And that is, that's very tough. And so if they want to pull back from that, there have been examples in history where companies have pulled back from that kind of overdistribution, but usually they get much smaller or kind of go away for a while before they emerge. I mean, I think Burberry is the, the ultimate example of that. Puma is another one. But those brands almost, you know, went away. I mean, maybe when the stock was on its lows, there was a real opportunity to take this company private and and do some of this hard work if they really wanted to do it, you know, outside of the scrutiny of the public markets. But I, I just think it's going to be hard to do that kind of thing as a public company. Awesome. Wow. So one more question kind of in this vein that I had was, Looking at the call, I thought management was really emphasizing e-commerce and emphasizing China and emphasizing, yeah, that the the L.A. news store uh, story, although I think that it was an analyst who asked about it first. But anyway, there were certain points of emphasis that the management's trying to foreground and I was just kind of stricken by the contrast between your approach to analyzing the a company and the kinds of things that management seem to be highlighting and what some people on the sell side seem to be really looking at. So I wanted to get your thoughts on kind of where there may be disconnects or uncertainties 
embedded in the difference between, you know, how management is presenting these results and how you're sort of approaching the company, specifically with segments like e-commerce or with China or with how is their narrative different from yours uh, within those specific categories? Well, I mean, I think if you take anytime you take a giant company with with business all over the world, you know, that's doing I mean, we just talked about the U.S. They have department store business. They have off price business. They have outlet business. They have e-com business. They have own full price retail stores. You know, so we just and, you know, and within that they have men's, they have women's, you know, and then you can get into categories where you have like denim and you have polo and then you have Lauren by Ralph Lauren, you know, the different lines, like, you know, so there's a, and then there's a, you know, you can talk about mobile sales versus within e-com, like how many ways could I cut this business? Right. We could talk about replenishment product versus fashion product. We could talk about special activations. Like there's, a thousand different things going on within a big company at any given point, there are always going to be positive data points. I mean, I'm sure if I, if you gave me full access to everything happening at Sears right now, I could find four really fantastic things happening at Sears. But if I, I could find something at Sears that is up a hundred percent and that company is going to go, probably go bankrupt, right? imminently i can't say when but you know do you know what i mean like and i'm not saying that that ralph lauren is serious i mean ralph lauren is a great brand there are many great people who work there talented people ralph lauren is a genius who is a legend within fashion who created one of the most enduring fashion brands ever i'm you know so you know i want to give them credit where credit is due i think that it's only because of the strength of the brand that they've been able to do what they have done in terms of outlet and off price. And, you know, and they're still distributed in Saks with Avenue, despite a giant TGX business. So, I mean, that says a lot about some of the core things that they do have going for them. But, you know, my point is that all these data points are, you know, it's always easy to pick out things that are potentially, tests are small or immaterial like there's always even even in a something that is on a negative trajectory there are businesses that are within it that are on a positive trajectory and i you know i find that the difference between somebody who is very experienced in the sector and somebody who is maybe more novice is being able to tell you know, what is really important versus what is just a lot of noise. Thanks. Uh, Daniel, you want to jump in? Yeah, I wanted to ask a question, Berna, about how much what's going on with Ralph Lauren is unique to Ralph Lauren versus their peers. And and you kind of got into, you, you know, you mentioned some other businesses, not quite the same thing, but like, and the two, the two things I'm curious about is we've talked about this sort of the pressure in the different channels and, and this balancing act between trying to grow the top line and trying to maintain their margins. But also one thing that we haven't talked about yet today, but that you brought up in your presentation was this idea that 
in the age of Instagram and the age of social media, it's tougher to control your brand and it's tougher. And, and also, you know, you, you, you surveyed millennials who millennial women who didn't care much for Ralph Lauren. And I'm just curious, how much is this like, and I guess maybe then why does Ralph Lauren become the one that you, you put in your portfolio position in, but how much is this unique to Ralph Lauren's position? How much is this, widespread across either the apparel industry or the consumer goods industry in general? Well, I mean, there's two different points about controlling your narrative on social media, I think, and, and, or in the age of social media, there's, there's, as a consumer brand, it's incumbent on you to have a consistent message across all customer touch points. So, whether you're touching the customer in the store, um, on e-commerce, in traditional advertising, on social media, at an event or an activation, in choosing a celebrity to endorse you and represent you. All these things need to be consistent in, in your messaging. So in terms of that kind of controlling the narrative, I think... They're probably pretty decent in that and, and, and above average um, and with one significant but, and it's a big but, which is, you know, they've created this giant co- channel complex that I keep on talking about of wanting mm-hmm. to be the Ralph Lauren of the 80s and 90s and Ralph on his horse and out in Jackson <laughs> Hall or whatever and, you know, sort of aspirational luxury rich people and, you know, something you might buy at Saks or on at a store on Madison Avenue. And, but then, you know, the reality is there's rounders and rounders and rounders of it at Marshall's, you know? So that, that is not consistent, but everything else that I do, that they do, I think is probably pretty consistent. But the other thing I mean by not control, being able to control the narrative is, and this goes to everything. We live in a world where you can't fool people by pretending to be something you're not because information travels too fast. Like there's such transparency online. So I always make the, I I always make the comparison to Tommy Hilfiger 15 years ago, which had started as a very hot brand in the United States in the nineties, late nineties. And by the early aughts had, also gotten over distributed, had gone down market, was just in too many doors, and it started getting too mass and had lost its cool factor. But in Europe, they didn't know that, and they managed to keep on selling it as a <laughs> premium brand. And, you know, it got double the price point and maintained. It was, it was, it maintained just a really premium positioning in Europe. And that, it's that gig that I think is up. You know, I remember, like, for a while, there was, you know, Coach had a difficult stumble a few years ago because they got their mm-hmm. outlet to full-price store. Radio also got out of whack. And there were too many lower-income people buying lots of Coach bags and outlets, and it made nobody want to buy a full-price Coach bag. And then they had to sort of take a, di- a bitter pill and, Sort of try to right size that that um, that proportion of their business. I mean, some people would argue whether or not outlet is right size for them, but 
they certainly took it down some. But I remember, you know, for a long time there were tourists, like I'd go to Woodbury Commons, big outlet mall that a lot of tourists go to outside New York City, and people were still looking for coach bags, even after it had lost its cachet in the U.S. It still had its cachet for Asian tourists. That, I just don't think that that happens anymore. That's what I mean by controlling the narrative. Nice. Everybody's, everybody knows now because it, it just news travels fast. So that's what I meant by controlling the narrative. There, I, I actually currently live in Europe and the, I, I think news travels fast. I think trends do, I'm in Spain and trends do sometimes seem slower. I've, just as you were saying about the, the old image of Ralph Lauren and I was just having sort of a revulsion rising in me because I really just don't like the polo shirt fashion and what it represents. And yet since, since I've been in Spain in the last year, my wife is trying to trying to nudge me in that direction with some Spanish brands. And so I'm just trying to really battle. So, and so maybe I need to disclose a bias about, Ralph Lauren's <laughs> underlying underlying <laughs> business as we talk about it. Um, Daniel went to Cruise. That's important to know. <laughs> I, I just, you didn't have to go there. Um, but I mean, I do think so, social media changes one big dynamic from social media that is, you say, who else is vulnerable? I mean, one thing that I think social media has done is, uh, and just the internet in general, is allowed brands to emerge more quickly that and has also allowed people to find these mini brands more easily like the the targeting that is enabled by digital marketing on Facebook now Instagram Google you know and it, it's evolving and it's evolving fast and it's allowing people brands to find their people more cheaply, more quickly. Mm-hmm. And so you see emerging brands getting faster, uh, getting big, bigger, faster, and um, more targeted. And so it, it, there was a large period of consolidation of uh, and of mega brands among the public companies where brands like Ralph and Tommy and Calvin and Donna and all these brands got really big in the nineties and oh mm-hmm. and you know the sort of the the rise of the lifestyle brand and bigger was always better. And then even you had companies like rolling up brands like like PDH has. And mm-hmm. you know, now you know, you see it even in food, right? Like this sort of preference for micro brands and artisanal and you see a lot of M&A at places in CPG trying to buy these emerging younger cooler brands because people want smaller and so one thing that just when I did my polling on Ralph Lauren with millennials both male and female was just the thing, when I had the open-ended question of what are your three favorite brands just the sheer number of brands I had hundreds of names come back and some of them I hadn't heard of and I've heard of a lot of brands and just, and I could tell who the person was. Sometimes I could just tell who the person was in terms of what their income segment was going to be and what part of the country they were going to live just by which brands they said if they started naming smaller brands. 
you know, this was an outdoorsy yeah. person. This was a hip hop person. This was a right. sort of sixties crunchy throwback person, you know, and it was just, you could tell. And so, you know, people are trying to express themselves through individuality. And there's this search for authenticity with millennials. And so this idea to be uniformed and everybody wanting to be the same is definitely on decreasing. And, you know, I think that this is something that's hard for Wall Street to sometimes grasp because I think a lot of people who work on Wall Street where you know, no one wears, no, not too many people wear suits anymore, but, you know, I mean, you go to a meeting, a lot of people were wearing the same sort of flat front khaki pants and the same either checked uh-huh. button down or a Ralph type, type of polo shirt. You know, like there's not a lot of fashion going on with most guys who work on Wall Street. So it may not be in, in this Wall Street demo that, that is, looking to express themselves through individuality and how they dress, but they may not be the target. They may not be representative of what's going on with the younger generation overall. Just, just quickly, is, is there any of that buying up of smaller brands in the fashion space, the way that like the food I was going to ask, because the food space, you do think of, you know, the various roll-ups and various buying, we, we've, we'll talk sometimes about like Udi's or all these obscure gluten-free brands and how companies have swallowed them up. And I know that happens in a lot of different spaces. Does that happen in fashion? I mean, do you see a lot of that sort of M&A to try to acquire that authenticity or that there was connection? A, there was a lot of, of retail, there was a lot of apparel M&A about I feel like pre-crisis, pre-financial crisis, there was a lot. And BF continues to be a an acquirer. You know, there are a few people in the market who are acquirers, but, like, you know, BF has gotten so big that, you know, to move the needle, like, they can't buy a $50 million brand anymore. It doesn't really move it for them. Um, but, and, you know, Liz Claiborne, which was, you know, the predecessor of you know, what became Fifth and Pacific and then ultimately Kate Spade, which went into coach, you know, they got themselves over-levered prior to the financial crisis and, you know, and and then, you know, they survived to be spun out into parts, basically. You know, so they tried that strategy but got themselves over-leveraged doing it. VF has been successful but has been buying bigger things, although some of the things that they bought have just grown a lot with them, things like the North Face and, and Dan's. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Perry Ellis has bought stuff and now they themselves, I think, are being bought. I think in private equity, there's a lot of, there's been action in private equity. I think that there was a lot going on, but, and, and I think there actually, there have been a couple funds that have been formed to buy this stuff, but there was a lot of action, but I think it slowed down because at least it's it slowed down. And I, oh, I, mean, I forgot, of course, PVH has been super acquisitive, too. Um, but <clears throat> I think some stuff has slowed down because of the concern over department stores. So, like, fear over wholesalers um, being being overexposed to, to department stores. But it, you know who's been very active is Walmart has been active because hmm. it, in sort of these newer businesses because they um, – they bought Mod Cloth was one thing they bought, which is an online native brand. 
in apparel with, with average ASPs much higher than where their client would buy. And didn't they? They bought mm-hmm. Bonobos as well, didn't they? So you, right. know, at, you know, they've been, right. they've at Walmart, and you know that's also you know online native that opens some stores later. So I mean, you're seeing, and, and and I know Target has a VC program where young companies can apply to basically go to Target boot camp and learn about growing their brands. I mean, it can be CPG or apparel, like. Basically, anyone who sells a product that that would be sold in Target is eligible to apply, and that's like for seed and Series A kind of companies. To go back to also something else you you, you mentioned or alluded to, and that we were curious about you, you, you kind of I I have been fortunate enough to not be in too many of those meetings, but I can imagine the sort of Wall Street bro sort of uniform and that general look. And one of the things you led your presentation with was the the point about how I think your numbers were 80% of household purchases are made by women, 90% of investment decisions. How much does, or how does that play out? It, it, does that end up being a big edge for you when you're looking at a company like Ralph Lauren or, or in this industry, whether, you know, all of these companies that you've just been throwing out, like, is that something that plays out? What, how does that sort of manifest for you or how do you, is it just, like, how do you think about that as you're approaching these sorts of names? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it varies from company to company. Sometimes it is, it's a huge edge and sometimes it isn't, but I do find that, that as a woman, I think that, that, over the course of my life, I've developed different information at work. I've had different life experiences. I've had different work experiences. And the way I see it is that the sectors that I operate in, you know, we all build models. We're all trying to figure out what the future earnings and cash flows of the company are and then do the same kind of valuation metrics on them. So. The, the models are garbage in, garbage out, right? And so it's really all right. about your assumptions. And we're not doing energy or financial services here. I'm doing consumer and I'm doing some media. I'm doing internet. But what is it? What is, what about, you know, there's nothing about consumer or TMT that reverts to the mean. Past does not predict mm-hmm. future results. So it's all about assuming, it's all about your future assumptions. And how do you get comfortable with future assumptions, it's a, it's a lot of judgment, and um, and I think that the, when I went to business school, most of my friends went into retail, media, internet, CPG. My female friends, they didn't go to Wall Street. Mm-hmm. You know, they went to consulting first, maybe, and then ended up in CPG, retail, media, internet. You right. know, they you know. They're, they didn't go to Wall Street. So, you know, I have, a, I have a lot of friends who, you know, help me understand these big strategic issues who are now, you know, C-suite or approaching C-suite and, and companies, private and public, all over the world. So that's different. You know, in my 20s and 30s, when guys were sitting and watching football and drinking beer all weekend, I was actually shopping all weekend <laughs> or watching movies, you know, which, um, you know, 
because I'm just not into football. I'm into looking at clothes and, you know, or, or I'm into seeing movies or reading a book or something, my, or going to the gym and, and doing wellness stuff. So um, my even like what I do in my spare time has maybe a more direct feedback loop into, you know, understanding some of these companies. And, you know, so there are times that, you know, where, you know, I'm a user of products that, that men will never be a user of. So I always give the example that, you know, I, you know, how many times have I been mansplained why I can or can't be invested in limited brands at any point because of some bra they're coming out with by a room full of men who have never worn a bra. And, um, you know, so that's the most obvious example. But, um, you know, but just this week I was talking to somebody who was a, a guy who was very, very smart and had done some excellent financial analysis. And he was fairly new junior in his career. But we were talking about Children's Place, the stock that I think is very tricky here. I'm not recommending it one way or another, but we were just talking mm -hmm. about it. And he repeated some conventional wisdoms to me about Children's Place, which is that they've been benefiting from, from Jim Bree's bankruptcy and that tailwind is going away. And they could be threatened by Carter's um, coming into the market for, with clothes for, you know, kids who are six to 14. They usually, they used to only do little kids. You know, I'm a, I'm a mother. I buy all my kids clothes. And, you know, I said, these are ridiculous arguments, really. Like it is conventional wisdom because most Wall Street people know that Best Buy, you know, benefited when Circuit City went out or Bed Bath & Beyond right. benefited when linens and things went out. But let me tell you, like at Jimbury, the dresses are $30 for the initial price. And usually the sales are only 20 or 30%. So like you're out the door price before any shipping and tax and whatever is usually around $20 on a Jimbury dress. The address at, um, at Children's Place usually starts at 15 to 20 and they're always 50 off. So you might pay 750 to 10 for the dress. That's a hundred percent difference. It's not the same thing. Or, you know, right now I looked yesterday and all the short sleeve graphic tees at, on Children's Place were three ninety nine, and they were pretty much 18 on Jimbery. That's It's a completely different market. And I think, you know, the guys just think it's kids clothes, but it's not the same customer. And, and if car, I haven't seen Carter's kids clothes yet, but if, if they're anything like, the little kids' clothes, like, they'll be pretty traditional and and basic, and they'll be nicely made and everything, but, but children's place tends to be very trendy and and rainbows and unicorns and sparkles, and, you know, this is usually where guys' eyes glaze over when I'm talking to them, but understanding that the conventional wisdom, you know, these companies are actually, they all sell kids' clothes, but they're different, and the use case for the mom shopping in these situations is actually different. It's, you know, it's sort of something you, it's hard to teach somebody. I love that. Right. Oh, I, I imagine myself like committing that sort of slam dunk on somebody, you know, regardless of, of their background or my background. So I can only imagine how, how much, I don't know. That would make me feel really good anyway, Bernard. <laughs> I mean, trust me. Something like that. 
Trust me, when there are three companies, when there are three fantasy football companies coming public, don't ask me to pitch which one. <laughs> you know, so I know my limitations. I know what I'm good at. And, you know, but you know, the point is like not you know just being able to know the difference between the clothes or the difference between the movies or any of that. It's all useless if you can't do DC apps and build a model and. Think about what happens if gross margins come in 50 lower versus 50 higher. You know, this all has to be knowledge within the context of strong financial analysis and valuation tools and also understanding the psychology of the market and what's priced in, what's not priced in and, uh, and all that stuff. But, you know, being able to layer this qualitative on, which I think too many people are missing. That's something that we ask, yeah, authors all the time for more of that synthesis. And it is certainly one of the bigger challenges that we face when we're looking at uh, analysis that comes in the door. One thing I wanted to touch on, well, maybe it's two things. One is this kind of widget attitude on Wall Street of different, you know, you mentioned that the children's clothes being sort of interchangeable is really a big myth. As an extension of that, I'm wondering whether there are any tying back to the sort of channel slippage and the overdistribution problems that Ralph Lauren has. Are there brands that are less vulnerable to that dynamic? It almost seems like in this environment, you're just what I'm picking up at least is that big brands are just going to be a kind of victim of their own success. Are there brands that don't sort of that are less vulnerable to this pattern? I mean, yes and no. I mean, they, I mean, in a way, they, you know, the 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 high level takeaway of my polling was that you know incumbency could be a problem, but on the other side, I mean, but there's always exceptions to the rule. But you know, everybody would like to be Nike on the other side, right? Because that pulls at the very top of everything. And, and among men, um, Nike was one, Levi's was two, and everybody else was way far behind them. So I, th- I don't think that, that big is necessarily a death knell if you stay very authentic and very uh, authentic, in, as I said, in all the touch points to the customer and you're um, controlled about your distribution. Um, so, uh, so it's, you know, I think that, you know, can you be big and, and, and I think if you control your distribution, it's okay. I mean, you have examples of, of, I mean, lots of companies in luxury obviously do a great job with that from Hermes to Chanel and LV and all those companies. And you see it with the high end of autos. But you know, I think that there are plenty of people in accessible luxury who do it as well, places like Lululemon. But, you know, even mass brands, I think, as long as they're, and I'm, I'm talking about some vertically integrated retailers here, but I think there are mass brands like with Children's Place, who I talked to, have talked about, or, um, or Old Navy or, 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 or Target who do what they do well and are pretty consistent about what they're trying to do and 
They have good merchants and good quality for price. And even in a very disrupted world, their customers have pretty positive feelings towards them still. You know, it, there's there's always pressures in terms of, you know, their cost pressures, their, their challenges, you know, on pricing and online, you know, cannibalization. So, you know, I'm not necessarily making a stock call on them, but, uh, you know, I'm talking about these are companies that are doing the right things, at least, I think, in terms of controlling their brand and um, being large brands. Got it. So sort of being successful on a one dimension, like having a, a really unimpeachable brand or potentially being positioned where you it's almost harder for a target to go down market and have that kind of dynamic at play and competing on price seems like another sort of protection in a way. I mean, I it think really you just have to you have to pick your lane and 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 stay right. consistent across your lane. Like this this whole idea. I mean, you know, I mean, and there are places that have you know higher end, and then I mean, you can go high low, but you just can't. You just have to do it in the right proportions, right? Because I mean, not as not as true luxury, but you know. Even I mean even I mean even Nike has outlets right and and plenty of people I mean Nike has outlets but the, you know you still have people getting up at six o'clock in the morning on Tuesday or whatever day like the new Jordans dropped but you're not seeing those limited edition Jordans ever showing up in a Nike outlet right so you know the mistake that that Ralph Lauren made was not that they're in TJX, but that they took their iconic signature product and put it in there. Yeah, whoops. Uh, yeah, Daniel? I mean, I've seen, <laughs> I've seen some pretty fancy stuff in TJX. I'm trying to think, like, what I saw the other day, like Helmet Lying or, you know, some, you know, I've okay. seen Sony in there. You know, I've seen true luxury Italian designer stuff in there, but, you know, I've seen their mistakes in there. I haven't seen their iconic items in there. <laughs> Whatever position right. you want in any of these stocks, just shop at TJ Maxx. It sounds like. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, but, but I mean, I mean, if TJ Maxx is a, you know, is a for, I mean, for people who aren't trying to be luxury or aspirational luxury, it's an important part of their distribution for a someone who's sort of more towards the center or in terms of positioning because the importance they don't ask for markdown money they don't ask for uh marketing support they don't ask for fixturing support sales people support so even though they started a lower initial price point and maybe a lower markup by the time you add in all these extra hidden costs of doing business their margin is actually doing business with them is a good margin and, and you sell to them, you make your money and you know you're done, which for these wholesale companies, it's important for them to have a piece of their business. So there are definitely healthy brands. I mean, you'll see Nike in there a lot of the time. So it's not being, I don't, I don't want to, I mean, I think that it's overly simplified to say, Oh, if you're in TJ or Ross, you're a weak brand. But, um, I don't think you should be putting a marquee product in there. 
You should be putting your mistakes so, in there or your end-of-season product that maybe you ordered a little too much of or, you know, somebody canceled. You know, you ordered a bunch of stuff for Bonton and then uh, Bonton obviously canceled or something. And so you have to reroute <laughs> it there, you know, especially if you don't have your own stores to push it through for outlets. So, you know, it has its place, for, but you just have to use it the right way. I, think. I wanted to ask about the... It's sort of not TJ Maxx in and of itself, but a lot of your work is you're doing scuttlebutt, you're going to stores, you're checking the channels, you're surveying different shoppers. And what I'm always, you know, we feel this just even different things we're trying to develop at Seeking Alpha. And also when I invest and I'm trying to inquire where it's sometimes hard to be confident that you're you've captured enough of a sample size that you're that you really have grounds to like if it, I, I feel like I would do a bad job and I would I would quickly confirmation bias and just be like excited about one small aspect and then extract like it would be hard for me to shake that and so uh, I'm just curious how you how do you make sure that when you're doing this sort of research that you are when do you get comfortable that you that the quality of what it, whether it's you know going to the stores or whether it's doing more sort of intensive channel checking or whether it's talking surveying or whatever else you're doing how do you make sure that you're keeping your mind open and also that your that that the that you feel that the work is like it reaches a level of okay this isn't just a random example this is a solid i feel like i can have a strong opinion here mhm well, one reason I actually never try to channel check quarters because I think it would be impossible. I mean, maybe it would be possible mm-hmm. with somebody with who had you know tons of resources and money and people all over the country, and you know. But I, you know, I only try to, you know, in this case, I was trying to channel check whether what I was seeing in New York with the core product, and you know, I use the core product as a as sort of the canary in the coal mine, I was, I also, I don't remember now what I, what I put in my slides. I, you know, I also checked for women's product, kids' product, home and shoes and, and, you know, for Ralph's product, all these other categories. When I went to these stores or had people go to these stores, it was a combination people I was working with going to the stores. But, um, so, but, you know, I, I consolidated, you know, the, the the shirt because I thought the shirt was the one that represented, you know, sort of was sort of the best way to measure the problem. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I am, I actually think that it's very difficult to channel check short term trends, but I was trying to get an understanding of the magnitude of the problem because the problem was large to me and, the New York stores and I was trying to make sure that they weren't an anomaly. And so I agree. It it is hard and it is a risk uh, of, of not having a large enough sample set. And I did not want to extrapolate off New York. Now, in this case, I went to seven of the top 20 MSAs and I had represented uh, four. I, I had Northeast, South, Southeast, Southwest, and okay. West and Midwest represented. So I had, you know, five major regions, seven top MSAs, 
and 21 stores in them for on the authorized, I think were the numbers. So I felt like that was enough. Um, and also knowing how a little bit, knowing enough about how TJ does their distribution, it would be highly unlikely that, that going across those geographies that, that those stores would look so different than, than the rest of their base. I mean, obviously they have thousands of, you know, almost 2000 stores or something. There's just no way, you know, I could, but you know, it seemed like that was going to be indicative but also what you know there's stuff that i did that also i didn't present which is tons and tons of industry interviews of of ex-employees and of um competitors and of people who work in um off price and you know so i had enough i had a lot of interviews too that sort of confirmed for me that i was in the right direction and so all this stuff was just trying to confirm that I was in the right ballpark, that this piece of the business was as big as it is, which they've basically confirmed now. Right. They've confirmed okay, the sales. So they that... haven't confirmed the margins. but And so I'm sort of I'm making some assumptions about how big the margins are, but, uh, you know, that's based on my industry understanding and talking to people who are private companies who do business in off-price and what they experience in margins in off-price versus margins in other wholesale business with department stores. Okay. So it sounds like you had a really clear idea of what you were looking for, and then you did end up, in this case, like that's a really thorough and wide pull of potential stores to make sure that you're not missing something. Yeah. And I mean, what's one of the reasons that I picked to present this? Cause I thought, you know, it was an interesting, it was an interesting piece of research. You know, I don't think every project le- lends itself to this kind of research because, you know, I could go to 21 stores around the country and try to, get a sense of, I don't know, the the comp at Banana Republic next quarter, and I don't think I get it right, you know, nor would it be mm-hmm. a useful exercise, you know. Um, it, it, it just, you know, it was, a, it was, this was one where I felt like I could really get at something that was, I could triangulate something that was going on at the company that was not disclosed, but extremely important by doing this confirmatory channel checking work. That's really, yeah. You said, so I had, or we had one last question and you kind of partly answered it there, but I'm curious about just, this is the first idea, you said this is the first idea you've shared publicly and I'm curious, so you sort of answered why this idea stood out, but what made you share an idea this time around and what's been... What's what are your thoughts? Like, what's been the most interesting thing that's happened since you've shared it, or what what have you sort of what have you taken away from just the process of going public with a with a short idea, especially? Well, well, I, I guess why I did it was to get my name out there and um, get practice in presenting since I was setting up my my firm and my fund, um, oh. and I've been in the business a long time, and I came. When I started, it was in an era where it was almost 
sort of was out of vogue to ever be public about anything and ever talk to the press mm. and things have really done a 180. And um, I think yeah. especially if you're not doing a big institutional launch and you're you're sort of bootstrapping yourself like I am, it is, you know, while you have to follow all the marketing rules and everything, which I 100% intend to do, it's still good to get a public presence. And I, I feel like I have a lot of experience and a lot of my peers speak publicly. So I was like, okay, you know, I guess it's time. And then Whitney is a personal friend and this is his new business venture. And so I wanted to be supportive of him. And he also made an effort. He was really committed to having women present at this conference and actually more than one woman, you know, because a lot of the conferences will have the one token woman in the lineup of 12 men. And he actually had four women and he asked me who else can we have? And, and, you know, there were four. And so, um, I was excited to be part of the female representation at this conference. And then in terms of why I chose this, I, I, I chose it. I, I think I alluded to the fact that I, that I thought this research was interesting. I know I just talked about that, but also I wanted to do an idea that people could understand easily. It's a household name. And, you know, what I talk about, the fact that the distribution issues and everybody, everybody knows what a polo is. Everybody has been to a TJ Maxx. When I talk about mm-hmm. polling and, and millennials and the fact that they're into athleisure and 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 you know what they're looking at in Instagram, this, people understand what this is. It's not talking about something arcane and hard to explain. I don't have to give a science lesson before I I do this. So um, not to knock anyone who's doing a science lesson for their biotech <laughs> short. Or I really like but... that idea. I just have to say I lo- I like that idea. So. Um... What's that? that? Mid- Midwestern hedgy, the um, the charging. Oh, I love this idea. Remote charging. <laughs> Quick note: We're referring to an idea by Chris Brown of Aristides Capital on Energis, ticker symbol W A T T. Back to the show. His presentation was was brilliant. I loved how his actual slides were brilliant because he basically put, he framed it of Do I go to um, yeah, what was it like rocket? rocket ship you know camp or do i go to disney and then he put a, like a disney print up taylor on every swift slide. reference so, in there yeah. Uh, the ta- yeah oh i was laughing so hard at the taylor swift reference that before anyone in the room because he had to explain it <laughs> i'm like i got it before you explained it he was, he was, was hilarious so it, it was a really good slide deck on something that would could have been really boring i give him super props for how he put that together but um I, you know, I, I picked this, so I, I thought, and then, you know, in terms of, so I thought it was something that would be interesting to people because it's something that everybody thinks they know something about this, right? Like if you've owned a Ralph Lauren shirt ever or thought about owning one, you have an opinion. So it's therefore it's engaging. (laughs) And so everyone has an opinion here. But I thought that for me personally, this highlights what, what I think makes my process unique, really understanding the industry dynamics from the perspective of an operator. One thing I don't think came up is that I have done consulting for some large retailers as well as some startups in my time outside of the industry using unpaid industry sources. So everybody 
has their GLG or Coleman subscriptions. But, you know, as I alluded to earlier, having people that I can go to for um, completely, you know, off the cuff opinions about, you know, is this a good idea? What do you think about it? You know, how, how do you think this company's positioning is? You know, nothing, um, you know, nothing non-public, but just people who will talk freely. It's, it's, it's different sort of asking friends to comment on this stuff is just a different conversation. People talk more freely or or just people, even if it's not a friend, somebody you went to business school with or, you know, somebody that you went to college with or um, somebody that you know from your neighborhood or something, you know, they're just, they're going to, somebody you've known a long time is just going to answer more, more freely. Um, and then, you know, how that, how that kind of bottoms up research can lead to a divergent view. Um, and just the process, I would say that my research was kind of half a McKinsey consultant study in the beginning and half of what a focus group at an ad agency might do or a trend firm might do in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And sort of that was all the beginning work. And then it, I took all that and then I flipped it into what a traditional Wall Street analysts would do with financial analysis and a model and evaluation. And so I think that is what's a little different about my process. And, um, you know, so I chose it because I thought that um, it highlighted what I do a little differently. Not every name lends itself to this kind of work, but uh, I thought that this one, you know, sort of showed me in my best light. Now, and it allowed me to highlight, you know, how this kind of bottoms up research can uncover something that isn't disclosed in the financials and get you pretty close to figuring out some numbers that they don't give you. And now, it, you know, maybe I should have, you know, picked something that was closer to its catalyst because I guess, you know, I think there are a couple of things that, you know, what's happened since, like how painful is it to go public on your first thing? And I had actually been coming off a streak of just all my shorts working, and then I go public on something, and it rips in my face. And so, you know, <laughs> sort of the embarrassment of having your first thing, you know, go in your face. Um, although nobody, nobody, I didn't get any emails like, "Oh, you're so stupid" or anything. It was more just, "Oh, should I get involved now?" You know, and then you know, a lot of questions. Um, so, so there was that, and it made me think about you know, sort of how you pick ideas within the constraint of a four schedule for a conference like that. I, I might think about it differently next time. But the other thing that was interesting was um, one thing that I just don't have the resources as a startup for is to go do channel checks in other countries. And somebody came up to me at the conference with a negative channel check on Europe. And then lo and behold, you know, you had you have been talking about weakness in Europe and Q2, although I don't even think that that's specific to them because I feel like every other conference call I've been on this quarter, people have been talking about weakness in, in Europe with their retail businesses. So I think that there is something going on in Europe. Um, and then, but probably another super valuable thing that happened about a week after I maybe a little longer, like with the YouTube club, the, the YouTube, the presentations up on YouTube. And I got an email from a, uh, from an acquaintance who I haven't talked to in years and years who came at me with some channel checks in China, 
which is that was gold (laughs) for my thesis in China, which uh, it was negative channel checks in China and that there is a lot of product and off price channel in China as well was what the person came back telling me. And they had no position in the stock. They were just, oh, I saw your thing. And by the way, you should probably know this. You know, I haven't done the check myself, but, you know, it was just, it's kind of interesting when you put yourself out there, you know, what kind of, you know, people will sort of send in their checks to you. And that was, that was interesting. So there's an upside to going public because all of a sudden you'll get information that you couldn't get on your own before. I mean, I guess if I had unlimited resources, I could go get them, but, um, so that was kind of cool. Okay. Um, I think that's, I think that's all we have, right? Mike, did anything on anything else on your end? No, just to say thank you, Berna. This was really great. I just a really great interview. Uh, that's all I've been thinking the whole time. I really appreciate your time. And, uh, I, I feel like I learned a lot from this. I think our listeners are really going to benefit. So just thank you. Thank you for your time. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much, Bernard. I, 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 everything Mike said times two. It, it was uh, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. We really enjoyed this episode, and we hope you did too. Make sure to subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. And email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com if you have feedback, requests, complaints, or anything else. If you can leave a review on iTunes or wherever else you get podcasts, we'd love that. We have a few more fun podcasts to wrap up the summer, so stay tuned. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for listening, and see you next week on Behind the Idea.